Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. I get this question a lot. The question goes something like this. I'm doing this thing with my dog. I'm using this program. And how do I know it's going to work? Or how will I know? Or when will I know that it's going to work? And so I want to talk about that question. Because the answer is you should know right away if something is working. And that's how you know if it's going to work. There's no other way to do this. Something is either working or it isn't working. And so nothing's going to feel like it's not working for, you know, six or seven sessions and then there's going to be a breakthrough. That's not how this is going to go. Don't expect things to go that way. Instead, expect that you see progress right away expect that you see kind of the light bulb going off for the dog right away and some tips to kind of get you there are keep your sessions very short and even within your sessions have kind of sets within the session so your sets within a session might only be 30 seconds so i go out to train something um i'm going to train for a few minutes but i'm going to set a timer for 30 seconds so that i train first for 30 seconds and then i evaluate i station my dog and then i evaluate and then i might train for another 30 seconds and it might be longer than that depending on what i'm doing or I might, instead of having a timer, I might say I'm going to go through three repetitions, four repetitions of this, and then I'm going to station my dog, kind of depending on what it is. So maybe if it's weave poles, I'm going to send three times each side maximum, and then I'm going to t- stop and take a break, something like that. So keep those sets within the sessions really short and keep the session short, and then look at the data. So if the data that is coming through is that you're having more failure than success it ain't working okay if you're having a lot of success it is get used to that feeling of success and expect it i feel like the reason that i am really really quick to pivot on my plans is because i am impatient i am used to things going well right away so because that's what i expect then I can trust myself to know if something's not going to work. And could I have been wrong? Of course I could have. I could have kept trying, but I don't want to. I'm impatient, so I want to see it working right away. And it working doesn't mean, oh, perfect, look, my dog is nailing every single weave pole entry under the sun right off the gate. No, that, that will take time, and I understand that that will take time. But she's getting it right most of the time and I'm delivering an appropriate level of challenge means that what I'm doing is working. Manipulate your setup if it's not working. So rather than trying to manipulate the dog, because this is what people do, they step in and try to help the dog, right? Dog isn't getting the weave pull entry, so they step in and lure the dog into the entry, or they step in and physically block the dog into the entry. Rather than stationing the dog, manipulating the entry, maybe opening the poles and asking again. 
So always manipulate, you know, when you are taking a break to evaluate, what you're going to go back and manipulate is going to be the antecedents. It's going to be the setup. It's going to be the props in use. It's going to be those types of things that you change. It's not going to be the dog. It could be the reinforcer. It could be the setup, but it's not going to be the dog. So if you're not having success, stuff's got to change. And the stuff that has to change is the setup or the reinforcer. I've talked at length about changing the reinforcer, reinforcement strategies in other podcasts. So hopefully you will go check those out if you are curious about that part. What's interesting to me right now is manipulating the setup to get the kind of core behaviors happening that I want happening. And the reason this is interesting to me right now is because one of my current training projects is to teach scent articles for the utility ring to my dog Felix. Felix is showing an open right now. I expect him to get his CDX pretty quickly and then I'm going to want to take him into utility. And one of the things he doesn't know yet is how to do the scent articles. And the reason he doesn't know how to do it is because I have been off and on exploring this project for kind of the better part of a year. It just hasn't been consistent. So I would say I've tried a few different plans and every time the plan isn't really panning out, I shelf it and think about it and come back. And I recently had a breakthrough. So I recognize that for Felix, separating the retrieve cues from the cues to scent is going to be paramount because the retrieve cue will outweigh any other cues present in the environment. And for those not familiar with the exercise, the dog goes out to a, it's called a scent pile, but it's just a bunch of dumbbells, a bunch of retrieve items. And the handler has scented one with their hand and they have to find the one that the handler scented. And that's a really simplified version of it, but that's essentially what it is. And if the retrieve cues are present, Felix is not going to think about sniffing. He's going to think about fetching because fetching is really great and really fun. So separating those has been paramount, but also just teaching him to scent at all because here we are. He's lived, you know, reasonable number of years at this point not being asked to scent because I don't do any other scent sports. So teaching him that sniffing, scenting, identifying odor is a reinforceable set of behaviors for me and then also separating this project away from the retrieve cues is really important so i did start out trying to teach him to target a scented canning ring lid a la hannah brannigan awesome obedience i think that's a great plan for felix it was very easy to pick up the lids and so that didn't successfully remove the retrieve portion although i did teach him that nice duration nose target on the lids the second he gave me an incorrect nose target so let's say he targeted the wrong lid and i withheld reinforcement rather than looking for another lid to target he would immediately progress to picking up the target and this relates back to the fact that i taught him to retrieve by building upon a duration target he would hold his nose to the dumbbell and then i would withhold reinforcement till he would bite it and that's again that's a really simplified um, explanation of how i taught the retrieve there's a lot of other steps in there but it makes sense to me that he would go oh you're withholding I should probably pick it up rather than you're withholding maybe this is the wrong one and I'm sure that 
there are ways that I could have made that work for me. But I saw that it wasn't working. I saw that he was flipping into retrieve mode really fast. I saw that while I think scenting is inherent with the nose down on the thing, there wasn't any sniffing going on at all. And he was in kind of an aroused retrievey mindset, certainly not a sniffy mindset. And I was like, the lids were getting like really slobbery. And so I just decided to scrap it. I just said, okay, this isn't working. And I did that quickly because like I said, I pivot fast. I don't like staying on something that doesn't feel like it's going to work for any length of time. I'm very impatient. So all of these things were kind of problematic. The lack of the sniffing and the wanting to bite the thing. So naturally I went to, well, I will just use the retrieve item. And I naturally, that was me being sarcastic. But I did go to, okay, I will use a retrieve item. I'll use an irrelevant retrieve item and I will hide it so that he has to sniff for it. My whole goal was to use multiple different retrieve items so that he wasn't ever looking for one thing and that he just had to find the one thing and I was hiding it in a junk pile and that got me a lot of really nice sniffing but as soon as he saw the retrieve item because no matter how varied these items were and I mean I was using like a spoon and a wooden dowel and a old dumbbell that I an old wooden dumbbell I don't use and like I mean just so many different things he if he knew it was a retrieve item if he knew he'd been paid for picking it up ever the second he saw it he switched into retrievey mode fetchy mode and everything in his mind changed so while he was successfully sniffing for the thing the second I tried to introduce like things so when I was using the wooden dowel I would then introduce blank wooden dowels to the setup that I had not touched. He could no longer sniff because he was seeing the retrievey things, the fetchy things. So he was picking that up. So we stayed with this probably the longest because before I introduced the blanks, it seemed to be going well for us because he was sniffing and searching. But like I said, the second I tried to introduce that discrimination piece, all bets were off He because he started to think fetchy again. It also was clear to me that, and I was just using hand handler scent because it is a handler scent exercise. Even though I wasn't touching the blank dowels, I don't think he was searching for handler scent at all. I think he was searching for the scent of the dowel itself so that, that it was a wooden dowel. So even if I hid all of the blank dowels, he'd find a blank dowel immediately and know that he was right. So I had two problems now. One is that he'd get fetchy thoughts quickly if it was a fetching item at all. And, you know, even if he had to sniff to find it. But two, and I think the bigger problem is that handler scent was not salient. Now, that to me is the challenge with this exercise is I think it's really conceptually difficult. And I don't think obedience people think about it like this very much. But when you explain this concept to a scent work person who maybe doesn't do obedience, they recognize how hard it is to teach the dog to find something that's been scented by the handler that is inside a bag that lives inside the handler's car or the handler's home amongst other articles that also live inside the handler's home. So like presumably there's handler scent everywhere and handler scent is not that salient. You know, even presumably the dog has learned that handler scent is irrelevant. I got him sniffing successfully, but he was sniffing for the wrong thing. 
Okay, so I needed to pivot again. And this isn't really meant to be the like Sarah solved the scent discrimination puzzle episode. It's really meant to be about pivot, but knowing which parts to pivot, right? So the junk pile was working for me because it prompted sniffing. The retrieve objects were not working for me because they prompted retrieve. But to me, the bigger, bigger deal was the the handler scent not being salient. So I decided to trash everything, scrap everything, and teach him to alert to a novel odor. So I'm teaching him to alert to an essential oil odor, just like they do in canine nose work, the sport. And I initially attempted to shape his attraction to that odor in the way that some people do in their scent programs where they don't pair the odor with food. They shape attraction to the odor using food reinforcement, but without pairing the odor with food, meaning they don't hide food with the object or tin in this case. It's a tin with holes in it with the Q-tip in it with the scent on it. So I have learned to pair with food and I had also learned how to not pair with food. And I went about it first, not pairing with food. And very quickly, I knew that that was not going to be effective for him. Very quickly, I was getting a lot of frustration, a lot of retrievy thoughts. In his little mind, there was no possible way that this was about this novel odor. And it must be about everything else going on. And I could have kept down that path. I could have gotten help from somebody who is good at that kind of thing. I know plenty of people. I really could have continued down that path. But to me, and here's that pivot point again, I don't think that would have been worthwhile because it was the program that was the problem because I know another way to do it. So I went ahead and said, okay, then I'm just going to pair it with food. And I know that you know how to scent for food. I know that you know how to find food if I put it somewhere. And so now I'm going to pair the food with the odor. And what I'm working on now is essentially a duration nose target to a container that has that odor inside of it. And y'all, it's finally working. The dog is sniffing. He's calm, he's doing a duration target on the container, and I've got several more steps of where I can go. He's alerting to this novel odor, so we are finally actually on scent. He is in the non-retrievy, highly sniffy state of mind that I want, so I'm getting there. And here's the thing, I will continue to have roadblocks and hiccup because I've never trained it this way before. And I've also never trained Felix to do this before. And so as I go, I'm gonna be as quick to pivot as I have been this entire time. If something looks like it's not working, then I'm not gonna keep doing it. And again, that could be my impatience, It could just be that it's not reinforcing to me to work on a training project that doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. But in general, I'm going to keep going as long as he's making progress. And every session we've had working this way, he's making progress. And so I'm going to keep going. This is also true of any of my behavior cases. If we're not having progress, I'm going to pivot. And if I believe that my program is good and I believe the owner or myself are carrying out the program correctly and it's still not working, then I'm going to do two things. 
One is I'm going to have a trusted colleague check the program, check the work. And the other is I'm going to look at those distant antecedents, right? What else could be going on in my behavior work? That's always a health issue. Occasionally it's an, it's a household issue that I haven't been informed of by the owner. So on a couple of occasions, I've been told about a really severe household issue that didn't seem relevant to the owner to include in talking to me because their issue was occurring outside the home or something like that. But in general, it's usually a health issue. And if Felix continued to not, you know, if I weren't making this progress that I'm making right now, I would absolutely hire a scent expert to come in and look at it. And I still might because it's so important for us to say, okay, if I know this program is good and I know I'm doing it correctly and I'm not making progress, then there are things that can or need to change with the program or there's a distant antecedent problem. Uh, The dog's unhealthy in some way. Something else is going on. So I would encourage everybody when you're training, you know, if you're asking yourself, I don't know if this is going to work. That's, that's probably your first clue. You should know, you should be seeing it working right away. So get out there, keep training, you know, look at your programs critically, have other people check them for you, but get used to success. Dog training should not feel hard. Okay, and we've got some Patreon questions for you. The first one is from Jasper. Jasper writes, can training add value to a reinforcer and would you stop using that reinforcer if it wasn't valuable outside of training context? And then Jasper's gonna give me some background here. Cherub is a one and a half year old Aussie who loves almost any food reinforcer you can offer. She's fed a dental kibble while our train cooperative toothbrushing because I've noticed a very mild buildup on her teeth and want to stay ahead. The kibble is a nice size to throw in a bowl, so I've been using it for cooperative care, scatters, food tossing games, and even recall. She happily works for it in training, cooperative care, and won't opt out of anything when using it as a reinforcer. There's been no downward slide in behavior while using it, but she started to pick away at it when given to her outside of training in a slow feeder or a bowl. So can training add value to a low-value food, and should I be worried about any negative effects on her and our training by using this food? I'm mostly using it because it's convenient and doesn't eat away into her daily calories, but will happily stop if there's any downsides. So Jasper, yes, training can and does add value uh, to your reinforcers when the dog likes training. It's kind of this cyclical conditioning that's going on. I have known plenty of dogs in my clientele who basically wouldn't eat unless they were being trained. So a couple of things here. I don't think it's a problem for you to use that kibble in training if she's enthusiastic in training. I would say then you don't have a problem in training. If she's not enthusiastic about eating it in general, though, I do start to get worried, especially with these specialized kibbles that maybe it's not the right long-term kibble and you want to be having a conversation with the veterinary team about that to see if there are other things that you can be feeding. I wouldn't put it in a puzzle toy if she's not going to eat it from a puzzle toy. And maybe she's getting enough through her training. It sounds like she's getting a lot of food in training. So essentially, Jasper, if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. I do like my dogs to eat their food that I give them in a bowl. So the bigger thing I'd be doing rather than removing it from your training is if you give it to her in a bowl and she doesn't eat it, take it away. Don't leave it out and don't try to entice her to eat it either. So 
Usually when you just do that, they'll get better about eating what you give them. But in general, if you can use it effectively in training, great, but watch your enthusiasm in your training because that may start to change if she's starting to have a little bit of a, ugh, I don't like this very much um, feeling about it. When you feed it to her, that could bleed into training. You just want to pay attention to that. Next one comes from Anya who writes, I just re-listened to the spay-neuter considerations episode and my understanding was that Jen Generally speaking, spay-neuter is not the big hammer for behavior change. Yes, Anya, that would be correct. That was kind of the consensus, and that was an episode done with Dr. Jessica Heckman, uh, because I am not a veterinarian. So Anya continues, what are your approaches to aggression between males, specifically intact males, having strong opinions about other intact males or neutered males, disliking intact males? Is this, in your experience, a modifiable behavior? What sort of things can one do to work on this issue? So lots of questions here. First of all, correct spay neuter not the big hammer for behavior change second of all there's too much nuance here for me to really go into all of it Anya and it's actually way more complicated than it seems I'm gonna do my best to answer your question but in general there's kind of two different things we could be talking about and I'm gonna say let's not worry about whether they're neutered or not when I talk about these two possible problems one is that the dog has conflict with with another male in the home. So that's one thing. The other is kind of a generalized same-sex aggression. So there's dogs who have a problem with another male in the home, and then there's male dogs that have problems with other males that they meet out in the world. I'm not going to go into the nuanced differences between like a neutered male that doesn't like intact males or an intact male that doesn't like neutered males. Like, let's not worry about that. Let's worry about the bigger problem, which is will neutering help? The in the home issue, if you neuter both of them and you do a behavior modification program, then the neutering might help, might help the behavior modification program. By the way, this is not the same for females. We're specifically talking about males here. As far as same-sex aggression outside of the home, Again, yes, also modifiable, sometimes helped with neutering, usually not though. So usually if your intact male doesn't like other males out and about in the world, he still won't after you neuter him because that, in my experience, tends to be a really deeply ingrained inherited behavior. Obviously, the inheritance of behavior, and that's it's funny that we're talking about Dr. Jessica Heckman's episode on this because that's actually what she studies. The heritability behavior is really, really complicated, but we know that same-sex aggression, especially in males, but often in females, runs in breeds, and that's always your big clue that it's heritable, right? So if it runs in breeds, it's probably got a huge genetic component. I could name several breeds off the top of my head that I expect the males when they're adults to have same-sex aggression to other males. So how modifiable is it? Not to the point that you're going to be walking your intact male adult Akita on a trail and he's going to be perfectly fine with whomever's intact male off-leash Labrador that's moseying on over to give him a sniff. No, he's not going to tolerate. You can train him to listen to you, but you also have to protect him, just like a dog that's scared, right? So all behavior is modifiable to a point, 
but we still have to be willing to adjust that the dog that we to the dog that we actually have and if i neuter my akita that i'm talking about in my experience that is unlikely to have a huge effect on this so the one that you might have help from neutering is if you neuter both of the males in the home but hint if they're fighting because you also have an intact female who's cycling spaying her will actually have the biggest impact um, on the household all anecdotal of course but essentially big complicated answer to a very big complicated question the reason we don't talk about spay neuter as a big hammer for behavior change is because it isn't it's not a reliable way to change any behavior it does make things in your household dynamic less complicated if sex is not one of the resources that's on the table to be fighting about but that's all it does it makes things less complicated it doesn't fix anything okay next one comes from michelle michelle is a new listener who has a 21 month old standard poodle who she says is a bit hypersocial michelle writes i've started with focusing on decompression walks because when i listen to your case studies that seems to be a common thread you're correct michelle that is a common thread she continues, I have to admit doing these walks causes me a lot of anxiety because I've owned reactive dogs in the past and the idea of that much freedom for my dog is scary. I've done most of the walks on a long line in a nature preserve near me. We do have a sniff spot about an hour away that she can be off leash in, but that is $35 an hour. So we are limited on how often we can go. I have a couple questions about decompression walk. First, we're in an area with a lot of rattlesnakes. Do you have any thoughts on snake training? So that's question one. Second, I am training this dog in agility. We do have access to a large agility field that is fenced. I've not allowed her to just run on this field because we already struggle a bit with focus and agility. However, it does meet the criteria for a good place for an off-leash sniff walk. Do you think letting her run in the agility field will help or hurt her ability to focus when it's time to work? Okay, so Michelle, first of all, it is really hard to make that leap from I've got a reactive dog that I never let off leash that I keep very, very protected to I've got a young, really social dog that I want to give off leash exercise to and I'm going to let her have it. So congratulations on trying. I know how stressful that is. $35 an hour is an expensive sniff spot and um, I'm sure it's worth it and I love sniff spot and it's so wonderful, but I totally understand that that can't be every day. It sounds like you're doing a really good job know that that anxiety is really common. If you go through the episodes, there's things in there that can help you as far as using a GPS collar, maybe carrying spray shield to protect yourself from other off-leash dogs, things like that. But let's get into your actual questions. The first one's about rattlesnakes. This is a big tough one. I live in Washington state. Uh, In Western Washington, we don't really, we don't have any rattlesnakes, but I'm from Colorado where we really do have quite a few rattlesnakes. And so I get it and I understand the question and I do not let my dogs when I'm in Colorado go tearing across desert type terrain in low elevation where they might hit a rattlesnake I actually don't they get a lot less off-leash exercise when I'm there than when I'm here I don't do snake training the snake training that I'm aware of and I know that there are developments towards positive reinforcement snake training I haven't seen the evidence yet to its efficacy although I think that information is coming the snake training that i'm aware of first of all i wouldn't do because i don't live somewhere with snakes anymore second of all the e-collar snake training that you're talking about falls outside of kind of my personal realm of ethics i would rather keep the dog in safer areas 
then do that. And again, y'all, I don't live there. So I might have a different answer for you if I did. No, that's not something I do. I would check into, uh, just Google Ken Ramirez snake training, and you'll find the most kind of updated information on positive reinforcement snake training. And you might think about that. And then your second question is, should I let the dog run loose in the agility field when I already have focus issues in agility? No, I wouldn't do that. That might come as a surprise to people, but agility training is really important to me. If you did that, it would need to be after your session. So get a nice, quick, short, good session, then have all your antecedents very, very clear. Okay, and now we are on a sniff walk. You know, put different equipment on the dog, put different equipment on yourself, and then go on your sniff walk. But in general, no, I I have working spaces are working spaces and exercise spaces are exercise spaces. So keep using that sniff spot, use the nature preserve as best as you can. Think about the snake training if that will make you feel better. Keep trying. You're doing a great job. I know it's hard. All right. Next one's from Christina who writes, do you have any general suggestions for dogs that excitedly bark upon hearing the garage slash car doors when the owners return home, but quiet down immediately when the owners enter? So Christina gives a little bit more background here. She writes, for extra context, we have two dogs that stay loose in the home while we are gone and are relaxed for the duration, um, which has been confirmed via cameras, until they hear the car slash the garage door, at which point one of them starts barking excitedly. If we wait to enter until she is quiet, she will settle down after about one minute, but this doesn't impact future behavior. It seems to be a chain with the bark bark quiet, right? Our second dog has recently gone deaf and is now joining in the barking too. I've tried scatters upon my arrival, but think this just adds to their excited anticipation. I'd like to use a manners minder for them outside, but don't love using it with two loose dogs. Behavior happens regardless of duration we're gone, and the dogs are not ever left for more than four hours. So, Christina, the first big question I have for you is, is this actually a problem? And why is it a problem? So is it a problem because somebody's inside the house and it's annoying? Is it a problem because you think it should be a problem? You think dogs shouldn't be barking? Really ask yourself if this is a problem. Because to me, they quiet down immediately after you come in. They'll even stop after about a minute if you wait. Like this doesn't sound like a problem to me. This sounds like you live with dogs to me. So think about that. And then if you do want to do something about it, you're going to have to wait longer. So if you're waiting a minute and then the dog is quiet and then you're going in, you absolutely are training a chain. You have to actually wait and you would confirm this on your camera for the dogs to give up and decide you're not coming in and go lay down then go inside. You will fix it if you do that. They'll bark, They'll probably still bark like once or twice and then they'll settle to try to make you come in with their settling. I wouldn't mess around with food um, at all. I, I wouldn't. So that's how you would go about it. If you decide you want to do that, it needs to be consistent. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a while. And if it's not a real problem, don't do it. <laughs> Okay, and last one this week comes from Lucy. Can you think of any obvious fallout to teaching my dog to eat food off the ground through his muzzle? There are times where I want to reward off my body and throw food as a reward while out on a walk and not have him always come eat out of my hand. For context, he has managed to eat through it before by accident, but I'd like to purposefully teach it as a skill so it's less frustrating by using the right size food, etc. 
I'm okay with him eating things he's not supposed to. He wears it because he can have strong opinions of other dogs. The muzzle he wears is a Baskerville, so it's fairly large holes in it to eat through. Lucy, all the dogs I work with are trained to eat a scatter off the ground through their Baskerville if they're muzzle trained. So you're hearing full permission from me to absolutely teach that. I think it's way more beneficial than any potential problems, and I don't even see any potential problems. So have at it. And that's it for this week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.